0: The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, starting in uh, verse 1, chapter 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. This is the gospel of the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be to God.
1: This morning I really just want to tell you two stories that appear in the Gospels. One in the Gospel of Matthew that you just heard read, and another in the Gospel of Luke. But before I talk about those stories. I want to ask you a question. I want you to think for a moment about a question with me. So, what needs to change in your life for your life to be good? How would you you finish the sentence? If only blank, life would be alright. What's the blank? What needs to change? So maybe you'd say, if only I had a different job, life would be okay. If only... Um, I could find that right person to marry. Life would be okay. Maybe it's something more serious if only um, that disease that I've struggled with or that disability, uh, that horrible burden I've carried in my health. Or maybe it's the psychological burden that I've had to live under. If only God would heal me of that. Or maybe heal someone that I deeply love of their struggles. Then life would be okay. Okay. Maybe it's if this loneliness that I deal with would go away. Maybe if somehow I just had more friends or or those few close friends that I can count on, then life would be all right. Life would be good. Maybe if uh, the relationship between husband and wife, if that would change in some way and become the kind of relationship we've always longed for, then life would be good. Maybe it's if my child, if the relationship with them would change or or their relationship with God would change. Then I think life would be okay. Life would be good for me. Maybe if I had more money. Maybe if I had the ability financially to make different choices, to have more freedom, to provide for others some of the things I want to provide. Then again, life would be good. What, What will you put in the sentence? If only blank. Boy, Now I could live my life. Now life would be all right. What problem needs to change? And as I list some of those things, I think they're all good things to desire. I think it's okay to want these things. In fact, some of these things that are difficult burdens to live under, it is of course okay that we want relief from those heavy burdens. I think God wants us to long for those things. It is a good thing to long for things to change, to be better, to be as they're really meant to be. We should do that. And this man in this story that you just heard read, he comes to Jesus as his friends bring him to Jesus because he's got a horrible burden that he's been living under. We're told he's paralyzed. And he wants that to change. And imagine how that man's life would change if that changed for him, if he was healed of that paralysis. Now, we're not told about him, whether he was Paraplegic, quadriplegic, if this was something he had been dealing with since birth, if some accident happened, if it was caused by some illness. We don't, we don't know. All we know of this man is that he is paralyzed. We get a few more details of this story in a couple of the other gospel writers because Luke and Mark both write about the same story, and they give us a few more details about what happened here. But what we do know of this man is he's paralyzed, and any time in history, that's a difficult thing for anybody to deal with. But I'd say especially for this man in this time, this is a difficult thing. Because he's living in a time where you don't have the social services you can turn to uh, to support you while dealing with that. The medical conveniences and advancements aren't there. Even things like a wheelchair not available to him. He has to have friends carry him. In uh, that day, he would probably have been fortunate if... if he had friends who would in the morning come and get him and take him out of his home and place him along a road or place him along a well-traveled path. And he would spend his day there begging, begging for people to give him food or to give him money so that he might survive. And then those same friends, if he was fortunate, would come and get him in the evening and take him back to his home where he would stay. That was the kind of life this man probably had to live. He was fortunate, though, because he did have some good friends, some very committed friends, who were so committed to him that they, they, when they heard Jesus was in town, Jesus is back at his home base in Capernaum, and when they heard he's in town, they were willing to carry this man, this friend of theirs, over there to see Jesus, because surely they'd heard the stories about Jesus. Surely they'd heard the, heard the stories about the people that he has healed, and they want their friend to be healed. So they carry him there so that he can be healed. Now, Matthew tells us this story in a, in a kind of a series of stories he's telling, and all of them seem to point to the same point. He's told stories about Jesus healing people. He's told stories about Jesus driving out demons. He's told stories about Jesus even calming the storm. And he will go on and tell more stories of Jesus' miraculous acts in this section. And, and all of these seem to be pointing to the fact that Jesus has unique authority. Jesus has authority over the human body, over illness and disease and disability. Jesus has authority over the forces of evil. Jesus has authority even over the forces of nature. And now we come to this story Matthew tells us. Jesus has unbelievable authority he wants us to know and his listeners to know. And so he tells us this story. So Jesus has just returned to his home base in Capernaum in Galilee. And we're told that he goes into some house and he's in this house and people have heard he's there and I'm sure again have heard of the miraculous acts that he's done. And so they're all there wanting to be healed, wanting someone they loved who's struggled with demon possession to have the demon driven out. People are there wanting blessed in some way by this miraculous man and his powers. And the house is completely full of people. And then we're told even outside there is a crowd around the house. And so these men carry this paralyzed friend of theirs to be healed by Jesus, and they're confronted with this giant crowd. And they know the likelihood that they're ever going to get their friend in front of Jesus is just very improbable. They're never going to get him up there where he can see Jesus and be healed. So they devise a plan. They decide that they're going to go to kind of a round. They're going to go up on the roof, and they're up on the roof, and they take some tiles off of the roof of this home, and they lower this man down through the roof in front of Jesus. And we're told, it seems like this man was kind of afraid as he's being lowered down, maybe because he's being lowered down from the roof. But he's also probably kind of afraid because he's, he's cutting the line, right? And we don't receive people well cut lines. He's cutting the line to be dropped down in front of Jesus. He doesn't know how Jesus is going to respond to him. Uh, what's going to happen? Will he be offended because I've done this and my friends have done this for me? But Scripture tells us that, that Jesus was moved by the faith of those friends. And I think also moved by the faith of this man who was willing to be dropped down in front of him. And Jesus says these words to him. Take heart, son. The word take heart basically just means don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, son. He uses this term of endearment towards him, son. And then he says these words. Again, he's been dropped down in front of him. He's kind of afraid. And and what he receives is someone who is kind towards him and caring towards him. I'm sure there's kind of an, an ah. It's okay. Jesus cares. Jesus is going to respond. And Jesus' words are, your sins are forgiven. Now, i got to tell you, if I am the guy who just got dropped down after all that, and the words I hear are, your sins are forgiven pause I'm thinking that's nice. Glad you did that. I don't know if you noticed anything else <laughs> that might need done here. Uh, going to respond to something another problem or what's going to happen here. But all here is your sins are forgiven. I, I think like now I, I read that into the story Because I think most of us are people who probably don't understand how miraculous that statement is. Your sins are forgiven. We probably don't understand that that addresses the problem. The real problem. The real obstacle to the life we long for is that. Your sins. Most of us probably just don't get it, and I doubt this man fully got it. There are always those other things. If that would just change, I'd have life. But do we really think... No, the real obstacle to life, for the life I'm made for and the life I long for, is sin. He says your sins are forgiven. You know, the word sin in the New Testament could also be translated just missing the mark. Well, that sounds nice, right? You missed the mark. You're a little bit off target. That's all sin is. Doesn't sound like such a bad thing. And I think that's how most of us think about sin. We're just a little off target. But Scripture also says that our sins are enmity towards God actually hostile towards God. We sin against God. We turn our back upon Him. In Jeremiah 2, he describes it this way. paints this picture. It's like there's this living fountain, this fountain with water that's pure and just never-ending and flowing freely. And this water God has put before us that we might drink and have our thirst satisfied. And our sin is that we go, no, nope, don't really want that, and we turn away from it. We reject it. We take his goodness and his blessing, what he's provided for us, and we say, no, I don't want that. And Jeremiah says, not only do we turn away from the gift he's given us, the provision of what we really long for that's before us, but then we turn and we dig out our own cistern. And in that day, that would have been meant you just kind of carve out a little indentation in the rock that would catch rainwater that would run into it. And he says, not only is this a, a cistern, but this is a broken cistern. This is one that leaks. It says, you go there and you dig that out and you drink from that instead, this water that's dirty rain water that runs off and then fills this up and then leaks out. It's very temporary water. You would rather satisfy your thirst there than here. Why? Because I did that. Because that came from my hands. Because I'm dependent upon me when I go there. And what a lie that is anyways, right? I'm dependent upon me. Well, where'd the rain come from? Right? Where'd the ability to carve out that rock come from? Uh, But I did that. That's me. And he says, the great offense of our sin is we turn our back away from our good God, our creator, the sustainer of life. And we turn towards this lie that somehow we can supply our own needs. No matter how bad it is, no matter how limited and temporary it is, we still choose somehow to believe that we can be our own God and we can provide for ourselves. He says that's our sin. Not just miss the mark a little. Not just a little off target. A betrayal of our God. Psalm 24 says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god? It is sin that separates us from God and His blessings. That's sin. That's the ugliness of sin, this pure and holy and righteous God. We have separated ourselves from Him because we've turned away from Him and we've turned towards sin instead. That's the ugliness of sin. If you really want to understand how ugly sin is, think about the penalty for sin. Think about the cost of redemption. How much more then will the blood of Christ... The cost of redemption, the blood of Christ, His own life on the cross, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. That's the penalty, death. Eternal, spiritual death, separation from God. So that we may serve the living God. He paid this price in our stead, gave His life to pay the penalty that we might have relationship with God again. Sin is more than just a little off target. It is a huge problem. And I'm sure that these people, these friends, and this paralyzed man, and all the people in that crowd, just like us, really didn't understand that the primary reason Jesus came was to meet that problem. That really was the foundation of every other problem they dealt with. He cares about all those problems. But at their foundation, the very root of them all is the same issue is sin there's the fact that we've turned away from god and we've sought life apart from him says that's the issue he's came let me run you through a few more verses quick here's jesus at the last supper right before his arrest he says this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins this is why i've come this is his words right before his ascension to heaven his words to his disciples he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And then Paul says right after his conversion, these were, these were Jesus' marching orders for him, the mission he was sent on. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in faith, in me. What does Jesus want for us? I think he wants healing, physical healing. I think he wants relief of our suffering. I think he wants us to know the joy. He wants us to know true peace. He wants us to know all of those things. And the way to those things is through forgiveness of our sins. It is the only path, and it's why he has come that we might know that incredible gift of having our sins forgiven. The real problem, Scripture tells us, is the wages of sin are death. It tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The real threat, the real problem that we cannot solve by ourselves is the fact that we are face to face with death, with spiritual death, with eternal death, apart from Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness of sins that come through him. That's that's the threat that we all face apart from him, and we can't solve that threat by ourselves. So again, of course he cared about this man's physical state, but I think he was looking a little deeper and saying there's something else under his physical state that I want you all to understand needs to be dealt with. It's the real problem and the real gift that he's going to address. Well, the people listening to this were told that there were teachers of the law, Pharisees that were there watching and listening. And they heard what he said, and they said, This is just blasphemy. This guy is claiming something that only God can do forgive sins. Exactly. That's exactly what he's doing. He is claiming something that only God can do forgive sins. That's who he is God who can forgive sins. Well, you got to be careful when you think things around Jesus because he heard their thoughts. He understood what they were thinking. And so he says to them, "Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk?" Well, the answer is your sins are forgiven, because if I walk over to you and say, "Your sins are forgiven," how do you prove that I that it didn't happen? How do you verify? Oh, well, it happened, I'm telling you. Well, until you stand before the judgment seat of God, who knows, right? So you have to trust, when I said it, that it was true. When Jesus says it, we have to trust that it's true. He says, so which is easier to say? It's easier to say that than to take up your mat and walk. Because that, if I say take up your mat and walk and you're paralyzed, we kind of know whether it worked or not, right? You either can get up and walk or you can't. So Jesus says to them, which is easier to say? And he says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. He says, I want you to know this. I don't want you just forgiven of your sins. I want you to know that your sins have been forgiven. I want you to understand it, know it, believe it. And, and since you can't really know it when I say it, if it's true... I'm giving you evidence that I have the authority to say it. Evidence all over. I have power over paralysis. I have power over the storm. I have power over demons. I have power over everything. You've seen it. You've witnessed it. You can verify that. So now I want you to believe me when I tell you your sins are forgiven because I have the authority to say it because I can do only what God can do. Trust me, it's true. He wants us to know. He wants us to know that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we have trusted Him as our Lord and Savior, our sins are forgiven. And I don't know if you're like me, but that's a truth that I know in my head. My sins have been forgiven. It's one of those things theologically, I go, Chuck, got that one. I know that one. But do I really know it? Do I really understand the incredible gift that's been given? Do I understand the incredible debt that was owed that has now been forgiven? Do I understand the fact that no, I truly am forgiven? No longer do I have to worry about condemnation before God. Never. That this has been, I've been set free of that. He says, I want you to know it, that all guilt, all penalty of your sins have been wiped clean and taken away. Another passage. Romans 8. You will bring any, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. We can rest in that assurance. If we have trusted Christ as our Savior, our sins are forgiven. We are forgiven sinners. Well, that leads me to another story that I want to tell. The second one, and that comes from Luke chapter 7. So this is a story that, again, most of you probably heard, pretty common story, uh, often told in Sunday school. This is the one where uh, Simon, who's a Pharisee, decides to have a dinner party. So he invites a few friends and he invites Jesus to come over to this dinner party. Again, probably heard about this Jesus, wants to know more about him, invites him to his house for dinner. So Jesus goes to his house for dinner and he's reclining at the table, we're told, and in that day, you know, the table was low and they would have a rug or some kind of pad and you would, you would kind of lean against that near the table and you would eat off of it. So your feet kind of sticking out from the table instead of under a table. Sounds really uncomfortable way to eat to me, but that was kind of common, you know. That's how they would do. Homes then also were very open. Didn't have things like air conditioning, so they were very open, easily accessible. So Jesus is there with these people at Simon's house having dinner and this woman crashes the party. And we're told that this woman was somebody who was well-known as a sinful woman. We're not really told all the details of her sin, but all we know is that she was a person of questionable character. Probably everybody in the room knew it about her. This is, this is a woman who's sinful with a capital S. Everybody knows it about her. But somewhere along the way, this woman has obviously heard about Jesus. She's come to understand who Jesus is and is apparently placed her faith in him and she seems to understand that because she's placed her faith in him her sins are forgiven so she crashes this party and comes to this house to see this jesus and when she approaches him she is so overwhelmed by being in the presence of jesus she just starts crying she must be sobbing because it says that her tears actually make the feet of jesus wet because she is just crying at his feet And then she lets down her hair, which was kind of an inappropriate thing for a woman to do in public in that time. But she lets down her hair and she wipes the feet of Jesus, dries her own tears from his feet. And then we're told she keeps kissing his feet and kissing his feet. And she takes this bottle of perfume that she has, which would probably in that day have been one of her most prized possessions. And she takes that bottle of perfume and she pours it upon his feet. Well, Simon, again, having some thoughts. Dangerous thing to do around Jesus. He's having some thoughts. Not thinking real well of this woman. Uh, thinking again. And, and he starts thinking, you know what? If, if this Jesus is supposed to be some kind of prophet from God, well, then surely he would know this is some sinful woman. And he'd be sending that woman away. He wouldn't be letting her touch him. So, you know, it kind of shows he's not who he says he is. Well, Jesus hears those thoughts. And Jesus responds to him he responds by telling a parable. He tells this parable and he says, you know, there was this money lender. And the money lender loaned money to two people. One, he loaned uh, 50 denarii, and the other he loaned 500 denarii. But neither could repay the debt. The debt was so huge, neither one of them could repay it. So eventually, this money lender, someone told me that this is the most unbelievable story in Scripture. Uh, The money lender forgave their debt. He just wiped it out. He took the debt upon himself, and they were free. They no longer owed anything. And so they've both been set free of their debt. And then Jesus turns to Simon and says, So, so who will love more? Which one of these two? And I think Simon kind of understood where this was going, because he says, well, I suppose, you know, probably not want to get too committed to this thing. Well, I, I suppose it's the one who is forgiven the most. I suppose that person would love more. And Jesus says, you're correct. And then the story goes on. And Jesus turns toward the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. I don't think he's saying she was forgiven because she did these things. Saying this is a woman whose sins have been forgiven. You know how you know that? Look at her great love for me. Look at the great love she has. Obviously, this is a woman who's known the forgiveness of sins. And then he he affirms what is already true. Your sins are forgiven. They are. Again, wants her to know it, wants her to rest in it, wants her to hold on to it like he does for all of us. When our sins are forgiven, he wants us to know it and to live in it and to believe it and to stand on it. It changes us, just like it changed her. So what does this mean? Well, we remain people of sin, so you all hear this and go, well, wait a minute, I still sin after my sins have been forgiven and I'm still supposed to confess my sins, right? And I'm still supposed to ask forgiveness for him? But yes. Not because I'm changing my status before God, but because, of course, if I understand it just like this woman understand it, I hate this sin. I hate the price that it had to be paid for it. I hate the debt that it built up. Not because now I worry about condemnation before God, but because sin is still ugly and destructive. It is still dehumanizing. It is still something I want to fight. And the only path to fight is the same path that ultimately will destroy it. It is to turn to Jesus Christ and to receive forgiveness from Him and to know that He will, and then to stand on it. I've quoted it many times, a quote from Eugene Peterson. I don't write it here, but it is just one of my favorites, and I don't have many, many uh, quotes, so I just keep using the same one. And in this one, he talks about how sin is dehumanizing and destructive and disastrous and all these D words he puts in front of it. And then he says, and the less said about it the better. He's not saying that we shouldn't be people who own sin. He's absolutely saying, yes, sin is horrible. We need to name it, face it, call it what it is, as ugly as it is. But there's nothing good about just sitting in it. The only reason to face and own sin is so you might turn towards the grace of Jesus Christ and you might receive it. That you might receive the forgiveness that is being offered to you through Him. That's the thing that, th- that this is all about. That's where you want to end up at. Standing on that forgiveness. This woman got it. She understood she was a forgiven sinner. And it changed her life. Now what keeps some people from embracing those things? I'd say a couple things. One, we just talked about a lot. The fact that sometimes we just don't get how horrible our sins are. So forgiveness doesn't seem like all that big a deal. Right? I'm kind of the, well if you look around and compare me to others, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm sure... Simon would have said, yeah, he's a sinner. You know, a, a lowercase s sinner, small s sinner. When you compare me to everybody else, I'm not so bad. Well, it, it would almost be offensive if Jesus didn't forgive me, right? Because I kind of deserve forgiveness when you compare me to everybody else. So I, I need forgiveness, but it's not that big a deal. Would this woman, understand, man, forgiveness, what a remarkable thing. My sin is so great. How could God do that for me? How could he send his only son to take the penalty upon himself that I deserve that my debt might be forgiven? What a remarkable thing. I think if we truly understood our sin, if we really understood the reality of our sin, I think what we would all come to understand is there is very little distance from the best of us to the worst of us. That for all of us, wherever we are in comparison to another, our sin is so great. It is remarkable and amazing that God would offer us forgiveness of our sin. It's kind of like me standing before somebody going, he forgave $10 billion debt? That is crazy. I can't believe you owe $10 billion. That is nuts. And he forgave that? Well, thank God I only owe a billion dollars. You know, well, if he forgave that, well it's only a billion, right? The point is, we can't repay our debt. We could never do so. We could never come close to doing it. And to try and pay a debt that Christ had already paid for us is craziness. It's actually an offense. If we are forgiven, then we, we celebrate the one who forgave it. We celebrate the debt he has already been paid and he paid it. And we bow at his feet like this woman did. The second problem is, one, we don't, sometimes we just think our sin is too small. The other one is sometimes I think we think what Jesus did is too small. We think what Christ has accomplished is too small. You know, I look at my own sin and I talk to people often about this. Where there's some sin in their life and I often say people kind of have a back pocket sin. They kind of have this thing of, you know, well, I'll confess my sins, I'll tell you all of them and I get it, you know, that Christ can forgive me. But if you knew this, if you knew this one, I'm not telling you, but if you knew this one, you would understand why I can't be forgiven. Because this is so horrendous and this is so horrible. God can't forgive, that is too big. Or maybe we think, well, maybe God would forgive it, but God expects me to pay as much of it as I possibly can, right? I've got to kind of show that I've done everything I can on my own apart from Him before I can really trust that He might even consider forgiving me. Christ paid the debt. Not because it was a small debt, not because it was an easy debt to pay. Christ paid the debt for us this huge, unbelievable, horrendous debt. He paid for us. We do him no good. We don't honor him by saying, now I'm going to go try and pay part of it myself. He paid the debt. He wants us to stand as forgiven sinners before him, celebrating the fact that we've been forgiven by him. What a remarkable thing that is. And he tells us if we get that, it'll change us in some ways. If we really understand, this, why well, he wants us to know it. It'll change us. Suddenly, when someone offends me, it changes it, right? That offense is not quite the same because I understand the incredible debt that's been forgiven that was on my account. How in the world can I hold this tiny little debt against them without wanting to see them forgiven and relationship restored? If I I really understood what's been done to me, then I want to forgive. I love this statement by N.T. Wright. The only reason for being kingdom people, for being Jesus people, was the forgiveness of sins was happening. So if you didn't live forgiveness, you were denying the very basis of your own existence. If we get it, if we really get that we are forgiven people, then of course I have to forgive. Of course I have to open the door to restoration of relationship to others when they have harmed me or offended me. Because forgiveness is a kingdom way. It is the only hope that I have. I want to live that hope before others. I want to testify of it by my small forgivenesses compared to this huge, unbelievable forgiveness that I've received. I've witnessed to what Christ has done with my words, but I also witness with my life in the way that I forgive others. I testify to the good gift that I've received. Now, one little thing I do want to say before I close, because I run into this a lot, is uh, so... So, is there any part that we play? So we're just all forgiven and it's done. So when I forgive others, I just forgive them all and it's done. I just, it's it. We just, there's never an offense, right? Well, again, I don't think Scripture's saying that. I think Scripture is saying no. Forgiveness is offered all of us. We have to receive it. God has done the work. He has absolutely wiped away the debt. But you have the right to say no to forgiveness. You know, some of you, if I went up to you and said, "Yep, I forgive you for being a jerk to me," some of you are gonna go. Uh, I really don't want that. I don't remember being a jerk to you. Uh, matter of fact, you ought to ask forgiveness of me for even saying that, right? Because there's no offense. To, to receive forgiveness is to own there's a need. To receive forgiveness is to say, yes, there's an offense. I need something. That is how I receive. Uh, I'll end with a, one more quote. This is a bigger one from Muroslav Wolf, a theologian. He says, God's gift was given, it was sent. But that's not enough. We need to receive it. We receive the gift by trusting that God has indeed forgiven us and by accepting both the accusation contained in forgiveness and the release from guilt and punishment. We believe and confess the wrong we've done. Without faith and repentance, we are not forgiven. God having done the forgiving notwithstanding. God has given, but we haven't received. Forgiveness is then stuck in the middle between the God who forgives and the humans who don't receive. God is offering forgiveness to us. God cared so much about restoration of a relationship between us and Him. He cared so much that we not face the horror of spiritual death that He sent His one and only Son to take the penalty that was ours upon Himself that we might now have available to us the forgiveness of our sins. Through faith, all we have to do is receive it. If you have it, I'd encourage you to consider that. Talk to one of us. We would love to talk with you more about that. To receive, nothing you have to do, nothing that's on your shoulders, it's been done. You just need to receive it. Through faith, you just need to believe and take it on as yours and then stand on it. And if you have received that, then let's stand on it. Let's live as people who get it. Let's forgive others and open the door to restoration of relationship with them when they offend us. Let's invite them to receive our forgiveness. Let's hope for it and fight for it because we want restoration of relationship. Let's be people who celebrate and express our gratitude and our worship and praise for a God who has done such a remarkable thing. And let's continue to fight against sin, that horrible, ugly thing, by continually taking our sins before God again and again, with that assurance that ultimately our sin will be forgiven. And even now we have the assurance in this moment that God wants to forgive our sins. Let's pray. Father, what a remarkable um, couple of stories. Father, I pray that you would help us even scratch the surface of understanding uh, how far we have moved from you. Father, how ugly our sins truly are. But Father, I pray that it would just simply cause us to turn and see how remarkable and great and magnificent your grace is. I pray, Father, that your grace will be the thing that captivates us, uh, that changes us, that changes the way we love others and changes the way that we love you. Father, I pray that your grace would just infuse every part of our being, uh, that it would change us, that we grasp it, understand it, and live in it. In your blessed name, amen.